Welcome to all. Uh, we're going to talk about Marvel Snap. Uh, today, the uh, regular uh, hosts of the show are unavailable, so I have recruited the DOF Avengers. Introducing first, um, one of the most successful user acquisition specialists in the world. Uh, now is in the Maldives, so that's how successful he is. He's the host of uh, two and a half gamers show where they did an excellent deconstruction of Marvel Snap launch and marketing. The Thank man that beats user acquisition into submission, Matej. How are you doing? <laughs> very good. Thank you very much. So uh, if you hear weird noises from the background, it's uh, it's because I'm sitting or, well, I'm lying on the beach in Maldives. Uh, so thank you very much for having me on the show. I try to enjoy talking about Snap. And on the other corner, uh, hailing from the frozen wastes of Stockholm, is a better <laughs> game economist. It's been an EA, Amazon Games, Scopoli, among others. Now a game economic uh, consultant. He also did an excellent analysis uh, of Marvel Snap at uh, GameEconomyConsulting.com. The prodigy of game economy, Philip Black. Oh, God, How are stop you, you. I'm doing yeah. great. Um, I would say I, <laughs> I started to become a little bit worse when I came out of this podcast, and I'm now looking at the Maldives on this video screen, <laughs> and then I look out here in Stockholm. <laughs> it's another gray day. Uh, yeah, man. Questioning my life choices, but, you know, we'll, we'll survive. Yeah. And last but not well, least, uh, the voice that you're hearing, which is not Ethan with a flu. It's uh, Javier Barnes, <laughs> a professional grifter. And uh, game designer, I've done a little bit of everything. Uh, you can find, by the way, links to uh, the contents of these two amazing guys um, and uh, content done by myself in the latest uh, blog post or in the Constructor of Fun, where we talk about, I talk actually, about uh, Marvel <laughs> Snap. It should be released by the time that uh, you're hearing this, so check it out. Um, today we're going to talk about Marvel Snap. This is a mobile car collection game. Uh, by Second Dinner, uh, a new studio founded by several veterans from Hearthstone. This game launched globally about two months ago uh, after a soft launch of three months. And um, correct me if wrong, but uh, the launch numbers seem unprecedented for a CCG. If we look at the list of the major KPIs, so that's like 9 million downloads, uh, about 12 uh, millions in downloads in, in um, two months, which are numbers that are fairly high for a game of this genre in mobile. Um, so first question, who are Second Dinner? Who are these guys? Well, before we start, uh, Javier, the intro of us, you put us as a, as a B team from the bench. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. Why would you do, the why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> We're okay, the Avengers. Okay, okay, okay. okay. That's, that's better. All right, so... So based on the on the LinkedIn research um, that I've done before, uh, it looks like there like there's seven, uh, sixty people uh, on LinkedIn at least. So I guess uh, that's the company size, and I think that's really lean organization. At least uh, that's that's my opinion. I mean, I usually do these LinkedIn backgrounds checks to understand better like the the company situation and uh, like the experience they have in different fields from you know the game design, the UA or the marketing point of view and uh, and just everything, just understand. So do you know, guys? So you're saying like, that when you yeah. say that it's really lean, you think it's a small team? Because like that seems huge, 60 people for a startup company. Oh, oh I mean, they scale too. 
Remember, they've, they've been yeah. cooking for, I think it's around four years now. Yeah. So they've been scaling. Exactly. I mean, I still remember the original pictures Ben Brode, who is the design director, would post leaving the Hearthstone team, sitting on a couch saying, hey, we're starting something special here. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, those funding rounds have certainly helped grow their headcount. So 60, 60 feels like a good exit velocity for a game of this scale to get out and live. I don't know. I don't think that's fat for a, for a mobile game these days. They're, uh, yeah, they're th in an expensive location, though. Right. True. Well, I mean, California looks expensive everywhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. But still, like uh, in terms of like lean organization, I meant not like super, um, let's say, like, heavy in terms of like management layers. Because I've seen game designers and marketing, and then devs, and that's it. Basically, not like uh, senior manager or whatever. So I guess. You know, there there are some people in the marketing, some some game designers, and then the founder team, and that's it. That's what I meant. Yeah, so it kind of this is a very interesting topic because uh, they do seem like a very game design driven company, right? Like, yeah, Ben Broad historically, which is the uh, I guess the ultimate boss of that company, uh, <laughs> is uh, very into game design. Um, do you think that may have influenced uh, some of the decisions? Uh, both the, the three of us in our uh, different contents have agreed that monetization looks kind of um, uh, it looks kind of weak <laughs> um, <laughs> I think we have different degrees of how negative we are towards that um, but do you think that um, that may be a deliberate strategy that they or is um, something that they have inherited from coming from HD and premium um, and being so design-driven and maybe not enough product-driven? I mean, I, I kind of group a lot of what's happening at kind of X-Riot and X-Blizzard companies in kind of the same bucket. You know, they're, they're similar cultures in that, you know, if you're to join these companies, it very much becomes a lifestyle. There's a campus. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of things going on. You build your social life around it. And so I think you adopt a lot of those principles when you leave the company and you go to start your own companies. And we've seen a lot of ex-rioters do this. And I think this is the first one we've seen from ex-Blizzard um, veterans. I think Frost Giant is the other one that's making an RTS. And, hmm. you know, they're pivoting to a genre or, excuse me, I think really making a mobile game, which they haven't done before. So not only do you have, I think, Blizzard's views on monetizations, which, which I think are kind of well-known, they're, they're soft. Um, you know, they have a very different view. And I think you're also looking at, you know, an HD developer that hasn't dealt with direct mobile monetization yet, which feels like a, a pretty strong uh, a culture that they're carrying forward, at least so far. That being said, you know, I see product managers. I see product managers yeah. listed on their company page. And, you know, I know we'll be talking about monetization later, but I can only imagine that a lot of the internal conversations are between product and between design. But uh, from what you what said, you think, it's Matt? not only yes. So it's not only in terms of the the product and game design, like the the marketing department uh, of the company. Like what? Like how many people work in that department? What do you think? Like just guess. I know the number, but I watch your show. Yeah, of course so. you know the number. <laughs> <laughs> but initially, initially I thought it was only one one person, but then. I was corrected on the DOF Slack, and obviously, where we had the discussion about the game and about the the show and everything. And then it, it's actually two people. Uh, but 
uh, they have limited UA experience. So, you know, like if you are launching a mobile game, like with this like IP and most probably like with like very big amount of budgets in, in mind, then you definitely need to have like a, either a partner who is going to run the, the UA operations or a very skilled team. And uh, yeah, thanks to the different news and conversations we had and Slack channels, then uh, now we all understand like the UA is done by the, the publisher Newverse. And uh, from the outside, it doesn't look that well. I think we will get to it. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them, they know their data. Head to appsflyer.com benchmarks now for more info. Um, actually, I think we can enter, uh, start now to talk more about uh, the game and one of the key things would be to talk about uh, the launch. Um, as Philip already mentioned, the game had been uh, in the works for quite a while. For they, they I think, um, at least I've been hearing that the game has been in development for about four years, maybe more. Um, and uh, before it globally launched, it had a soft launch. I actually um, don't show any of this data on, <laughs> on the uh, article just because I think it's more interesting to discuss the global launch. But one thing that I found quite interesting about the soft launch was that first it was pretty short. It was only three months of soft launch, 
where oh. which kind of sounds weird to me because I mean to really assess ROAS I, I, in this type of genre where the, I assume that the CPI is pretty high, I would assume that that takes way more than three months. Um, of course, in three months maybe you can find like maybe I don't know promising KPIs or something. It's not about the K, uh, like how what kind of KPIs you can you can find. It's about like how and uh, like what like how the KPIs measure over time, and with three months, what what you will have, not not that much because uh, it takes time to actually check all the technical stuff that you have in the game. Then try to check the retention, then move to monetization KPIs, and it's like three months is super short. I mean, usually or ideally, you are in the soft launch anywhere between six to nine months. To actually see from the monetization point of view, like how those cohorts mature over time and like what kind of LTV or ROAS curve you can expect after global launch. Yeah, actually, um, one thing that, for example, interests me that perhaps was missing on the soft launch is they have not yet proven the uh, or not experienced the uh, flow of release of new content, right? And they actually mm. kind of pivoted that. Uh, quite a bit because they were like a few months, but very intense. Um, I remember they um, had this uh, Nexus event uh, with mm. some sort of load boxes. Uh, I don't know. If, and, and that didn't work out. They actually removed it. They're, they now have are going for something completely different. They launch, uh, they launch with something and now they're, they're pumping out another thing. But I'm not sure if... Philip, you want to maybe talk a little bit more about this uh, Nexus event, what, what it was? Well, m maybe to talk a little bit about the soft launch period. You know, I, I think the soft launch period is interesting. I actually wonder if they should have stayed longer to fit in more features. I, I don't necessarily know if getting a read on ROAS is a good opportunity in soft launch, mostly because you, you don't have your UA creative optimized, so you're not really getting a good read of CPIs. You're generally operating in countries that aren't your majority market, you know, it might be Australia, you know, in live, that might be 2% of your revenue, who knows. And I would say the other piece is that monetization is so, there's so much variance in monetization that I think it's hard to draw a predictive analysis between what you see in soft launch and what you see in live, especially when there's so many things are changing. And so it feels like the new model is just a test for retention. And like, that would be my guess here is that they were testing for retention. I think perhaps the other thing is, you remember, you know, there's a lot of HD background here. They're used to very big brand marketing spend budgets. You know, mm -hmm. it's not as much of a LTV minus UA um, equals, <laughs> equals revenue equation. Yeah. And so, you know, they may have just been testing for retention say, hey, let's get this thing out the door, similar to the experience they had in Hearthstone. And they, from what I can tell, they spent a lot of money on brand marketing, you know? Yeah, it doesn't seem that there was a ton of performance stuff. Um, I would love to have known more about their budget breakdown, but it felt like brand marketing was a really big piece of this game. Yeah. Man, don't, don't... Recent changes in the app stores are boon to mobile game developers. Now you can sell in-game items and currencies with big savings on transaction fees. And Exola just added three new features to their web shop for mobile game solution to help you level up your monetization practices outside the app stores. The three solutions are subscriptions, analytics, and promotions. Now, subscriptions are a smart add to your mobile revenue strategy. They boost game revenue with predictability while maintaining a lawyer user base. Analytics give you data. 
and data has become fuel on which modern society runs. If you don't know your players, you won't know what they want or how to get them to click that buy button. Analyze your data so you can create critical piece of the purchasing puzzle. Finally, promotions allow you to easily reach out to opt-in players via email or Discord and other channels to bring them to your web shop on your website. You'll be able to generate new sales and keep more profit. To find how to get started, visit exola.pro slash mobile or go to the link in this podcast description. Don't even start me on the on the soft launch because I think we can have a very spicy discussion on that and maybe I will just <laughs> actually invite you to, to two and a half gamers to, to talk about that because here... I think they might have tried different uh, monetization tactics that like uh, Javier actually suggested because they tried loot boxes. Uh, the community really hated it. So they switched to something else, which obviously they liked, but they switched it to like, you know, earn less money, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, the soft launch data, if we compare um, the revenue per download, uh, mm. to and even total revenue and downloads with other uh, CCG titles like Magic the Gathering Arena is not that different. But then that has nothing to do with uh, the, yeah. the data that they generated in Australia. Any of these games have nothing to do with the data that they are generating in the US. So I completely agree with your point, Philip, that they probably mm. were looking for uh, retention, not really monetization KPIs. Um, so then we jump into the um, launch. And um, yeah, as we said, in the launch, uh, they've gotten a lot of downloads, like huge flow of downloads. It has now gone down, though. It has yeah. The number has normalized. Um, they, uh, have, they have made about uh, 12 million in revenue in two months. That pretty much sets them in a uh, bit of an intermediate cut, uh, point in um, revenue per download in the CCG genre. Um, actually, a bit low compared to Magic the Gathering Arena, Hearthstone, and other. And if, if we go for mobile first CCG games, it's even, even lower. Um, hmm. And uh, I want to uh, make some questions to you, Mate, on uh, user acquisition. Um, yeah. Because on your uh, show, you talk a lot about, like, that you think the game is not profitable, that the UA doesn't really make, make sense, like, the numbers do not make sense, and um, they probably are spending too much for for user <laughs> to acquire users that they're not going to be able to pay back. Um, but I wanted to ask if does the math change if we take in account a, a significant volume of organics and brand marketing because my assumption is like i think this looks a bit similar to maybe cases like brawl stars where maybe if you look at the revenue per dollar it doesn't it doesn't really make sense but if you take in account the traction that they're getting in downloads and and plays from other sources that are not paid uh, the math that that actually becomes a profitable game. I'm not sure if we're in well, this situation here. Well, like, how does the math changes? I mean, if you spend more, but it doesn't reflect uh, 
in the revenues, but only on the the number of downloads. Like how does that math changes? Okay, it changes, but it's actually even more unprofitable than than on the other side of things. Yeah, but my point is, um, is it possible that although paid user acquisition isn't good, like uh, programmatic UA isn't isn't good, um, actually, if we take in account the eCPI, the game works well and they maybe just need to uh, invest in other types of marketing like content creators well, sure i know i know what you mean but uh usually these uh these activities even in the in on the brand side of things have a big impact on downloads and then on the revenues afterwards but the revenue stayed flat until the season changed which was a big spike and then it decreased again to, to some level of uh, stable daily revenues. So, like, it looks like from the start, when I was commenting on the, the global launch uh, UA strategy, there was a huge spend, or at least, like, huge um, share of uh, impressions on Facebook, Google, and, and, like, basically every channel out there. I have my comments on that, but every channel, on uh, every channel, basically. Now it changed after, like, three or four weeks, and uh, now I see only the impressions on, on Google, Facebook, and then here and there some like Apple search ads and um, Aplavin and, and maybe Twitter. So that changed a lot. But thing is, like you usually do these like big bursts. So then you can scale down, but the revenue is increasing over time. So that, that was the play which was applied in 2014, usually. You spend heavily in the first two weeks, then you scale down, and then you see the, the, the revenue increasing over time because you stack up the, the revenue. And that's not happening. <laughs> that's just not happening <laughs> here at all. It's actually on the right, like, like the, the opposite direction. So the revenue was flat here and there, Season changed. Now it looks like they scaled down, and revenue is scaling down as well. So something is not working. Yeah, I would maybe argue that I don't see the revenue going down though. Like the revenue is flat, which it's the downloads that are decreasing significantly, but the revenue is kind of. It depends on what to, what tool you are looking at. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, but when it when it comes uh, to revenue, what I've seen is that. It has plateaued basically, and it yeah. had the spike with the release of a new season, which introduced yeah. a new battle pass and like a bunch of new content to acquire. Um, what, what it is true is that the flow of downloads is not translating into uh, a, yeah. a, a constant growth of on total revenue. Um, but at least my analysis has been in the direction of okay, if if the revenues is remaining more or less flat, despite the downloads going down pretty fast that probably means yeah. that the game has pretty good at least short-term retention and i'm thinking here on another game that uh we analyzed at the construct of fun which was pokemon unite which also had like a even bigger um yeah. burst of early downloads but the revenue was one one linked with the downloads so when the downloads went down the revenue immediately went down, which probably indicated that the game didn't have very good retention. And it only yeah. monetized um, the beginning from tourists, basically. Um, <laughs> do you think this is, Philip, do you think this is the case here? Or do you think, what do you think about re the retention? 
I, you know, I, I'm not quite sure yet. I mean, I would ass- this game isn't your traditional mobile free-to-play game, right? It's from HD developers. There is not a strong sense of vertical progression like you would have in Clash Royale. You're not just getting better, right? Your card collection is horizontal, and this is something I'm sure we can talk about you know, in terms of the game design. But again, if you, if you contrast this with Clash Royale, Clash Royale's main mode of progression is ranked. It's, it's gaining trophies. Yeah. You gain trophies by winning and losing. And so that ends up going to a much smaller portion of Marvel Snap. Ranked is a much smaller portion of your ability to progress. And Clash Royale can do that because they have all these RPG-like mechanics, right? You can take a card and you can give it plus 20 health. You can't do that in Marvel Snap. And so with such a long, you know, horizontal collection mechanic in Marvel Snap, you know, that's not something we're used to in free-to-play. And we know vertical progression retains people. People want to win. And so if you have a guaranteed relationship between the time I invest and my ROI in terms of win probability, I think it's an incredibly strong carrot to keep players around. And this is going for a very traditional CCG, which is about puzzle solving. And Ben Brode came out and and mentioned this on Twitter. And I agree with him that I think to me, the best CCGs are the ones that put you in bizarre positions that you need to problem solve. That is how they get flow going. And they've chosen to go that route. And so I wonder if this is just going to be a different audience than your traditional free-to-play product. And I think we're already seeing that, right? This is a more traditional HD audience. You know, they might play Apex Legends. They might play Call of Duty. I don't think they're logging into Game of War or to Clash of Clans. I think this is going to end up being a Hearthstone audience that is finally trying to pick up mobile for the first time or probably has dated mobile for a little bit and and might be looking for a longer-term relationship. So I would say, you know, I I think there might be short-term retention problems. You know, to me, I'm not so concerned about the downloads going down. They did a brand marketing campaign. You know, uh, PM I worked with called it the Scorched Earth Strategy. They're trying to build a war chest of DAU that they can monetize later on once they get their monetization into a better place. I'm not sounding the the alarms yet. I think they're going to be fine. I think that they are going to find a really long tail retention cohort that is going to be into this game. I'm not I'm not so concerned yet. Yeah, I agree with a bunch of your points. Um, uh, definitively, uh, I don't think that they have a retention problem. I actually think that the short-term retention is pretty is probably pretty good, uh, which is the, why the uh, revenue is, is uh, pretty much stable despite downloads going down. So I think that points out to solid retention. There's the doubt of long-term retention, of course, because the <laughs> game just hasn't been out in soft launch or global launch for that long. I'm not sure if they have and how reliable the data that they obtained during their closed beta or whatever they did uh, is. But, I mean, obviously, like, long-term retention is, is the big question, <laughs> a big question, but um, I, actually I don't think, think this goes... I think that they, in the short term, they are pretty good. Like, I mean, I would go great. back to our conversation about soft launch and whether or not they, they went too early. I mean, we know when you're making a decision to stay in soft launch or to launch, time is money, right? So ultimately, like the equation you're trying to solve is, am I going to get more money by keeping my game in soft launch, by adding more features? And then when the game launches, I'm pairing the best version of the game with my audience. And overall, I'm going to get more money rather than, you know, keeping it... Um, you know, keeping in soft launch. And so, you know, I I start to wonder with this game if they should have added one or two more modes before going live. They have one mode. They have one main mode. You 
log in, you click the play button and you're into Marvel Snap. It's incredibly simple, but also is incredibly limited. And so I wonder how fast they can get to those additional modes. It's something that's not really mentioned on their roadmap, which is already pretty compelling, but I was surprised not to see more modes, more ways to use my cards. It's just kind of they the have simple an onset, mode. They have an unset, a non-ranked mode. What I'm, I'm not sure if they hmm. have an onset... Um, Mo- like modes with like card restrictions or like specific rules that I don't know, but at least they have announced a non-ranked mode, which is great because now there's no way to safely test new decks, right? Um, but yeah, th- that's actually quite in uh, interesting the length of the of the soft launch, considering there was the game has been in development for like four years. What I would expect is, or what I assume is, okay, they have been polishing the gameplay for about four years, but maybe. They should have launched a little bit early. It's not like if, if you have been developing the game for four years, it means that I, I don't understand if if that means a cash problem because like they clearly had. Oh, I'm sure they're well funded. I'm sure they're well funded. They clearly had the funds to develop and, and, for four years, right? So and look why at, wouldn't you stay six months or nine months in soft launch? That's kind of and, weird for me. And second dinner devs, if you need money, reach out to me. I will personally write you a check. <laughs> uh, just let me know. Reach out. Whatever whatever size you need, I can. I'll figure out how to make it work. I'm a <laughs> Come believer, on, man. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's pretty weird uh, that they did. Yeah, but you know, uh, Javier, short... look, it might be also connected to the IP. You know, we are dealing with Marvel, which is a very big IP, and we don't know like how it's how it's um, you know working on the back on the background you know maybe they pushed it pushed them to you know like hey you need to launch now and you need to spend x amount of money we don't know that yeah that's possible that's possible actually like in the um, conspiranoic cycles right like there's been a lot of discussion or like oh no no they had a mandatory launch date and that's why they launched but who knows they only they know right um yeah it's all speculation. So getting out, <laughs> getting out of the jungle of suspicion and uh, into the facts, um, I would like to uh, spend a couple of minutes uh, discussing on gameplay and all that. Uh, Do you mind if we talk about one more thing when it comes to UA and creative that I've been? Please, yeah. let's go. So, so the you know we kind of have the UA and the creative, but when you kind of yeah. look at the product from a UA perspective, it's all comic book characters. It is nothing in regards to the MCU, which Marvel has spent an incredible amount of money building an audience and recognition worldwide around. It is a very comic book UI art style, and all of the marketing materials feels very comic booky. And so Oof. even when I look at the cards, you know, I look at, at things like Dazzler. Can anyone tell me who Dazzler is? I have no yeah. idea what Darkhawk. Of course. Like, who are some of these characters? I mean, I know, but I'm, I'm pretty nerdy. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I, thought, I thought I was nerdy. Like, I, I read, I, yeah. I've read some comics. Man, I mean, this is like, I have, they're reaching deep into the, the Marvel barrel. Very, very deep, very deep. So I have a Marvel sleeve, and I had uh, <laughs> all these, like, Wasp characters and these type of things before it was even like uh in the movies nobody know nobody knew about it uh, in my uh area but here i mean exactly what you said like there's like america chavez in the creatives nobody even heard about america chavez until doctor strange movie came out and that's super nerdy super super nerdy so i if you want to you know try to appeal to wider audience like just 
use different Marvel characters. Come on. There's like several yeah. different, more popular heroes from the MCU than America Chavez. And I can name 10. <laughs> and that yeah, can have a very I'm, I'm big effect really sure on the CPIs. I'm not really sure how the... Um, uh, how the uh, what, what are the characteristics of the license agreement that they have? So maybe they cannot use um mcu they have these characters in they have these characters in their videos yeah, they yeah, have yeah. iron I'm... man they have hulk they have everybody there venom all of these characters they're all there already you just need to put them in front of the creatives well, and it, it's even more puzzling when you consider where they've gone with a lot of their cosmetics and again like i don't i don't look at this necessarily from a monetization perspective but from a from a CPI perspective, from a marketing perspective, yeah. why is some of the first variants you're going live with, and I believe it's original art, like these pixel variants, it's it's taking a character like Rocket Raccoon and making them 8-bit. That is something I have zero emotional connection with whatsoever. That I, <laughs> Who is that? Who is 8-bit, uh, you know, Rocket Raccoon? I mean, you know, there's that famous, you know, Todd McFarlane Spider-Man cover from a really long Ooh. time ago. Where he has, you know, he's, he's, uh, the spiders are coming up, uh, you know, it's crawling onto his body. You know, I have a t shirt with that. <laughs> I'm not a huge yeah. comic book nerd, but that's such a striking image to me. Where is kind of these moments in time in Marvel history in this art? Where are the MCU characters as a think... variant? Why can't I, wh- where's Robert Downey Jr.? I would love to collect Robert Downey Jr. And you know, even if, even if that's a licensing barrier, I still would have loved to see them open up more of the Marvel comic book library. And I can only assume they're going to be doing that in the future. It's just weird to me that they didn't do it for launch. Honestly, uh, the creatives, I think we are now dealing with the, the newverse team who is who might probably, those guys are not as nerdy as we are in here. So, you know, like even if, you know, if you are talking about Marvel, like all the other like people around me is like, ah, oh, well, yeah, Marvel, Iron Man here and there, whatever. Nobody cares. Maybe they, those guys are just, you know, not interested in Marvel IP at all. And they just use whatever they have in their um, like creative folders, like, okay, slapping it in the in the Facebook, Google, or, or any other UA channel. And that's how it looks like, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of interesting because when you start playing the game, uh, you get a lot, like in the starter deck, you get a lot of characters, super recognizable, no? You get uh, Iron Man, the Hulk. Yeah, um, I yeah, think, yeah, um, exactly. Jessica Jones is there, and Jessica Jones is fairly popular. She had a um, Netflix show. Uh, so, like, the starter deck is filled with the uh, many very recognizable characters. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting that many of those have not been used to the extreme in the, in the creatives. Look, um, Javier, that, that is pretty the, weird. And, the and creative strategy I, I completely looks... agree with the... The creative strategy looks like the the weakest point. Uh, that's what I think. And I, what, like one important and interesting fact that I've seen when I was uh, looking into this uh, around the global launch was the TikTok uh, video with Samuel L. Jackson, and they used it quite heavily in TikTok. Now they post TikTok completely, which is a shame. I think it's like very, I'm very disappointed because it's one of the best channels out there right now. And if they can use Samuel L. Jackson why you know like you tap in why you don't tap into samuel and jackson in, in like very different creative concepts at least i mean that's a very recognizable character and that that can help super super well 
And Phil yeah, isn't that's uh, already. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very interesting. I, I, I wonder mean, I if can, uh, they're going to... I can only assume it's coming. I mean, yeah, exactly. to, to be fair, like, I mean, to, to give more credit to the team, you know, they've been timing the most recent battle pass with the Black Panther. Yeah, the Wakanda. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, this is pretty common across all games that have the Marvel IP is making sure that you time your content releases, making sure that your content that you're actually releasing and the time it's releasing is tied up into a movie. Like you want a free ride on all of the brand marketing that they're going to yeah. dump into these films. I mean, that that should lower your CPIs. We see this all the oh, yeah. time on games that, for instance, are tied into a TV show. When the TV show comes on, CPIs <laughs> will drop during that yeah. TV show. We always used to see that on The Walking Dead. And so, you know, I think they are starting to take advantage of that, which is which is wonderful to see and all the credit to them. Yeah, actually, looking at the future, that's probably one of their biggest opportunity when it comes to uh, growing the game, right? Like, um, if they keep this strategy where they time um, in-game events with... Uh, brand <laughs> marketing paid by uh, you know <laughs> by Marvel <laughs> Studios um, that they they may be able to write write that wave in order to help the game grow and that's why I was mentioning that at least in my opinion I while I can agree with with Mate on the on the topics of analyzing their programmatic UA and, and paid UA in a more uh, standard structure I have a lot of uncertainties when it comes to the brand mm. marketing and how they are going to be able to leverage that uh, into the future of of the game. Um, but guys, one one quick question. So even if you if you time everything into like the the movies and brand marketing and pay the way and whatever, if you can't pay properly in the game, like what would you do? <laughs> like how would you monetize those players afterwards? Yeah, <laughs> that's the main question. That's, that's the point. main question. <laughs> that's a that's a good point. Um, we'll deal with it. Before jumping into that, I would like to okay. at least go quickly through the uh, gameplay because uh, one of the topics that you folks have mentioned uh, around a couple of times uh, was that okay, these are clearly very HD veterans and and they come from a different platform. Um, so maybe there's like rules and like. Standards but of mobile. The, that gra- they the game is great. Aware of. I love it. The team is is awesome. Like they're clearly, yeah. they're clearly something else. Like yeah, very good. But but we said about like well you know from a more traditional mobile point of view maybe we we would have handled this in this other way. But on the gameplay at least, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting that the game to me seems the best CCG. Uh, adaptation like the best adaptation of the CCG experience to mobile, right? Because if you look at Hearthstone, Magic the Gathering, Layers of Runeterra, I play them all. Um, but uh, they on mobile they're somewhat awkward to play. And actually, this is something they uh, point out in the article that a lot of these games have and have very weird mix up between iPhone and iPad. Like they monetize mm. too much on iPad compared to like the average, which kind of, to me, kind of points out that, well, try to play Magic Arena on a mobile. It's difficult to play, but if you <laughs> play it on an iPad, it's it's cool. Um, but so these are games that are somehow awkward to play on, um, on a mobile, but that's not the case with this one. Like this one, really well it seems really well adapted 
uh, in terms of, of gameplay when it comes to playing on a smartphone on a smart screen um, so that I find that surprising right like it's so well adapted to mobile considering that these are developers that may not have a traditional background on mobile right I, I go as far as to say I think this is HD developer strike back I think we've started to see this over the last you know five to ten years is that HD developers have kind of you know taken taken a couple kicks in the pants in terms of catching up to where mobile has been in terms of live ops in terms of production in terms of UA just so many things that go into building games as a service HD has been slow to adapt and I think this is the first time well I wouldn't say the first time I think we've started to see inklings of this over the last two years with Call of Duty Mobile, some of the convergence happening of like more traditional dual stick shooters. But we're starting to see HD developers come in on mobile. And while they don't necessarily have all of those things that we were talking about solved, what they do have is not giving two shits about the mobile design paradigm. They're not going out and just building another 4X game or trying to add one additional feature to the match three title that will, you know, that will, you know, perhaps change the paradigm, they're coming in with a completely different framework um, and they're exploding what, you know, what previously exists. And that's why I think like there's been so much chatter about this game is that it has this, this vibe that was similar to when Clash Royale released is that it sends a shockwave throughout the industry. You know, maybe it's not going to end up being this incredible, you know, monetizing game for the next 10 years, but it's something that we're all starting to think about and to, to chew on. And if this is, this is just one title, I guarantee you that there's more in development we don't know about right now that'll be hitting mobile. But I think the boat's going to be rocked quite a bit on our traditional mobile paradigms. I mean, we have match three, we kind of understand what that is. You know, we have, we have the puzzle genre, we have 4X, we have, you know, kind of these uh, mid-core yep. ARPGs. Um, I, you know, this is an opening shot. This is an opening shot to those paradigms. And I think we're going to see more and more HD developers start to rock the boat. Yeah, I I uh, I think it's an interesting point. I would maybe argue against the fact that, well, it's not like they haven't touched mobile and they just discover smartphone. Like, um, because like even if we take a look at Hearthstone, Hearthstone has been in mobile for quite a while, and probably it's a game where the limitations of mobile, uh, when you try to port uh, the timing and you try to port the usability and the amount of information that surfaces on a bigger screen or a, or a different platform have been very I'm, I'm sure they have struggled with them right what i find very uh um it has a lot of merit in my opinion is that they have understood very well uh, the limitations of the tabletop format the limitations of the di standard of digital ccg uh, and uh, solve that in in a very interesting way when it comes to to mobile. No, if there are several things on that, like the amount of information that you manage during the match, it's pretty small. The amount, the the tempo of the gameplay loop, which I think it's something that um, it's 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 key, no, for for how much suited for a hobby or for a habit. Um, a mobile game is yes, that's that's pretty cool. Like the matches are super short. They generate this uh, oh, just another match, just another match uh, sensation. So when it comes to gameplay, this is really good. <laughs> I think they get an unbelievable amount of credit for just how much time they've spent adapting to the mobile medium. You know, you were mentioning Hearthstone as you know a game that has been from Blizzard from this team. But, you know, that, that feels like an HD game that got ported to mobile by the wishes of some exec. 
this is a mobile game that's been built from the ground up for mobile. And, and specifically what I mean by that is it's horizontal. So I think that's just a more natural way to hold the phone. It's much easier. It's way you, you're naturally holding the phone to check your email or you know whatever it may be. And I think the other thing is they spent so much time on trying to get session time down to maybe three, four minutes. And it feels quick. It feels quick when you're playing the game. There's only six turns. There's a fixed number of turns in this game. And not only that, there's a fixed turn timer, which is, is something that if you're a Magic the Gathering player, you wish for every single day as people continue to waste your time in between turns. And not only that, they've introduced this retreat mechanic. And this retreat mechanic not only is an interesting game design mechanic, but it also can shorten matches. So you might have your match end at turn two. So there's a lot of different types of session times I can have within the game. Um, you know, again, like just missing the Clash Royale meta, like the only session that I can have with this game really, though, is a gameplay session. There really isn't a whole lot else to do. Maybe I browse the store, but mostly I got to go in. I have my game. And just the other thing I want to call out here is how incredible their matchmaking is. It is on par with Clash Royale and that as soon as I hit that button, I don't even have time to hit the cancel button if I made a mistake. It goes so fast, um, which is which is almost frustrating. But you're able to get into a match in what, two seconds flat? Unbelievable. You're probably playing bots, though. We're probably playing bots. <laughs> yeah, from, from the beginning, uh, for probably sure. Probably playing bots. Um, but, you know, I, I got to give credit to them. It, it's still an incredible experience. It feels buttery smooth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I uh, completely agree. Um, for those that haven't played, uh, this retreat mechanic is related to a lot of betting mechanics involved into the game, right? Uh, I think... This is a trademark of Ben Brode. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's him or somebody on his team, but like a lot of the Hearthstone also, it's a, a, another game that plays a lot with randomness and uncertainty. It's kind of its trademark. And uh, here they move it to like a whole completely different level, right? It, many of the mechanics are seem very extracted from poker, no? Like the locations being revealed, that's Texas Hold'em. Uh, kind of thing, um, the betting that that something interesting is that, uh, and I'm not sure if it's a mechanic that is very unique, but um, it's the first time I see this on a game is that you can bet your trophies called here cosmic cubes if I'm not wrong. Um, you can you can bet on on doubling how much you're betting on that on that match. Your opponent can also bet, so instead of uh, um, if you don't bet, you advance at the pace of, if you win, a two by two. But if both of you do this snap and double the amount, you can advance at a, um, a rhythm of uh, eight trophies. And I found that, like, that's really cool. Uh, at the beginning, I was like, oh, I'm not sure. It doesn't really change. But now that I'm far more advanced into the ranks... If somebody snaps and I don't have it sure, like that's a very deep decision. Like that's a lot of effort that the opponent may be stealing from me, right? And I think it's another design innovation for the team. And I look at it as an outgrowth of what really, I think Apex Legends started, which is really playing with ranked and playing with the idea of ranked or progression as a currency. And the idea that you can you can have something, you can wager a variable amount 
So normally, you know, I win, I get plus one. If I lose, I get minus one. But now they're adding a little bit more complexity and sophistication to it. I think it's the same thing we see in extraction shooters, right? Now it's not a, you know, direct linkage, but, you know, if I'm playing Escape from Torkov, I can go into that game with a bunch of gear, you know, I can acquire more gear, and then I'm essentially making bets on, you know, do I want to take what I have uh, with certainty or do I want to risk it to get a little bit more? And Apex Legends, you know, I was entering particular matches by putting up a certain amount of ranked points. And so I'd love to see developers play more of these ranked mechanics. I think they're super fun. I think it adds a lot to Marvel Snap, even though it wasn't really well explained in the Fatui. Uh, Marvel Snap developers, if you're listening to this, please tell me more about the the Snap mechanic in the Fatui. But yeah, it's it's a ton of fun. Um, I also think we'll be seeing a lot of really analytical deep dives on on the best way to think about, hey, do I up the ante or do I not up the ante? But you know, more credit to the team. Another. I didn't even know there's a snap mechanic until I play like forty matches. I was like, "What the fuck? Who snapped? What? what, What's happening now?" I was like, "Oh well, oh I love it. (laughs) It's amazing." (laughs) I started using it. it. (laughs) Yeah, to be honest, it grows in relevance as you progress. At the beginning, it's not really a game changer, but like once you're advanced, like the game is about that. Big part of the game is about that, Um, and. I found that um, compared to other games, because I've been like long-term player of Clash Royale, I have like five accounts. Some of them that I max out, I, I, I'm bored, I leave, I start another. And uh, what happens with those games is that they plat- the ranks plateau, right? Like at one point it's like, sure, like I'm playing, I'm winning some, losing some, but there's not a lot of dynamics on the or dynamism on the ranks. What I found in this one is like that this... Um, multiplier on progression that can go uh, well to you or against you, it dynamizes a lot the ranks. It makes you flow up and down quite a lot. Um, and that makes it that makes the matches way more interesting. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is a mechanic we're going to see replicated in more games in the future. Um, and just... Uh, to wrap up the part of gameplay and jump into monetization, which is what we are going to kill ourselves. Um, another thing that I found very interesting, when I saw at the beginning the game uh, and the focus that it has on power, I thought like, oh, this is very power creepy, right? Like you can, you know, release a new collection with 7% higher points and that's going to replicate the meta. Maybe that evolves into that way, but something that was a bit surprising to me was or that was quite surprising is that how uh, orthogonal differentiated the design is right like um you have characters that the the character skills that at the beginning of the game do not matter that much that much they really are game changers right That, that makes every card like really recognizable i would even argue more recognizable and game changer than cards in magic the gathering even don't you think so I mean, the, the, the way they've built these abilities is just unbelievable to me. And I also, I also wonder sometimes if they've gone too far with some of these abilities, just in the way that they, they screw with the traditional way of thinking about the game. I mean, to give you a small example, like they have Agnetha Harkness out of yeah. recent oh, MCU that's amazing. Fane. That one is amazing. You know, the, if you have this card in your hand, it plays the match for you, which is just absolutely mind-blowing that they would introduce a card like this into, you know, th- this particular type of game. You know, there's some other cards which I start to question whether or not they went too far. 
There's another one called Nakia, I believe. And what this card does is it gives the two leftmost cards in your hand plus two power. And you might say, well, that sounds like a pretty generic ability. But the thing that it forces you to do is that you now can't rearrange your hand. That's something that they've made as a design decision. So if you're a Magic the Gathering player, the first thing that you're going to do is you love fiddling with your hand. You love organizing it in particular ways. And so they don't want you to be able to set up this play where you're going to put the two most powerful cards in your hand into the left part of your hand. And so sometimes I wonder if they've gone too far in some of these design choices. And on the other hand, I'm just happy to see them do crazy stuff. Um, It sounds like an absolute (laughs) blast to see some of these cards in real life. There's another one, Captain Marvel, also out of MCU fame, which will move to the lane, which which lets you win the game, um, if it's at all possible. Which is just again another mind-blowing card. Usually, you know, we rarely see cards that kind of play with the mechanics of the game at that level. Platinum Angel and Magic the Gathering says you can't lose the game. You know, that that's like a mind-blowing card that Magic would do that. But it feels like that's just another, you know, walk in the park for Marvel Snap card designers. They always seem to be asking, how can we push the limit? How can we break the mechanics? How can we screw with the engine? And it's just really fun to see that come alive. Yeah, it's it's Pretty amazing. I think it gives a lot of uh, value to new content because whenever a new mechanic is, a new card appears, you really need it to for a specific strategies. They also have these um, locations that, uh, well, they, they change the probability of appearing from time to time and they generate effects. And that I've seen that once you advance quite a bit into the game, um, they make you tweak your deck or even use alternative decks in order to maximize the capacity of, um, well, or in order to synergize with those locations. So it's it, for me, it's been really, really impressive how with cards that have so little elements and are so simple compared to other uh, CCGs and uh, short matches, small deck size, um, they are able to generate decks and experience, match experiences and strategies that are so different. I think that only speaks to the ability of, of the team to create incredible gameplay. Um, so it's about time we jump to talk about monetization assistance. Oh, is think? it that time? Is it that time? Oh, Let's get spicy. Finally. finally. <laughs> Let's get spicy. Let's talk about money. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. So monetization. There's not a lot of to it in systems. There's not a lot of to it. Um, the game has no live ops, barely live ops. Maybe the only live op that they have is the location probability changing, which doesn't really change that much the game. It doesn't introduce new content. Um, there's a battle pass. The battle pass introduces one new card uh, so far per per month. Um yeah, that, there's not a lot of things. Uh, maybe the most relevant okay. things when it comes to systems that I've found is uh, the relationship of cosmetics to progression, right? Yeah. Any, any of you want to explain how that works? So yeah, I, I, I think I think it makes sense to talk a little bit more about kind of the value flow in Marvel Snap. And so you'll, you'll go into the game. Um, you'll want to spend money, <laughs> potentially. Yeah, and, and you can't. what you'll do is, <laughs> and you can't. And so what you'll do is you'll, you know, you'll have your wallet ready to go and you'll buy gold bars and your gold bars let you buy a couple different things, right? One of the things they let you buy are uh, credits and credits are a currency that you need to use on all cards to frame break them or cosmetically upgrade them. 
and by frame breaking or cosmetically upgrading your card, you are rewarded with collection points. Collection points increase your collection level, which is very much like an account level progression. And that is the main way in which they source rewards in Marvel Snap is by you getting credits and you're combining it with one other thing, which is a character or card specific XP. They call it boosters. And you earn these boosters in a variety of ways. Sometimes you can purchase them in a rotating store. Other times, and mostly, you earn them through either the battle pass or through playing matches that will award you some boosters at the end of the match. So you need to merge both your time predominantly, and you can also merge a little bit of money in case you're short on the credits. Because remember, you need credits on all of your cards to upgrade them while the character boosters are card-specific. And so the collection level is ultimately where they're going to source you new cards. That to me is what players want. They want new cards. They want to win. They want to be able to have new tools to go out and to solve puzzles. They want to have a lot of these crazy cards we were talking about to also have new experiences. And so it's absolutely wild that they don't deliver this, in my opinion, through loot boxes. Now, in some sense, they do, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. But ultimately, it's a very strange relationship between monetization um, at the top of the funnel of, hey, I, you know, I insert a quarter versus ultimately getting the thing you want. There's a lot of steps to go through. So remember, you got to go into the store. You got to you know, take out your wallet. You got to buy this gold. And then ultimately with that gold, you might buy some credits or you might buy some more ammo in terms of variance, those card variations we were talking about, because those variations or those variants are more opportunities for you to increase your collection level. Remember, more collection level means more new cards. So it's a very strange series of relationships that they've developed in this game to monetize ultimately. And of course, okay, okay, there okay, are okay. Spend caps, What is important? Which is just yeah, wild. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So that, there's, there's spend this is caps. the this is the crazy stuff. This is and the also crazy like, stuff, in my opinion. What's important? Like, how much so, money player can spend? Like, what's the spend depth? I. I'd, I mean, like, do you Incredibly know guys? Like, low. I, I'd love yeah. to. Try I don't know to, off the top of my head. But we know it's time-gated, mm. right? We know, it, yeah. we know it's time-gated because when you go to buy these gold bars, the next thing you want to <laughs> do is you want to buy credits, right? Because credets are ultimately are what's going to be allow yeah. you to unlock um your to frame there is, and, and there is a timer points. and there is a timer on those and there is a daily <laughs> timer on the amount of credits you can buy which just is absolutely mind-blowing to it's me ridiculous and it, it's it and to be clear you know one thing i really want to push back on sometimes that i hear from hd developers is like they they, they want to craft some sort of experience that they feel like is favorable to the player this to me is not favorable to the player in any in any bit This to me is an incredibly negative experience, both for payers and for non-payers. And we've seen a lot of frustration for players saying, I want new cards. I want to be able to experience new cards. And you're limiting my ability to do that. And so really, I think the spend cap on gold to credits, which again, ultimately limits how fast you can increase your collection level, which will limit how fast you can collect new cards is an incredibly negative experience as a player. It's very frustrating to me. And so it's either that you're going to spend these gold bars on credits, which are limited, or you're going to have a very small selection of those cosmetic card variants we were talking about. And again, that's limited. It's limited by what? <laughs> yeah. I think six cards that are in the shop. So the game has just these really small spend caps on a time basis that I find incredibly frustrating. And ultimately, they've, they've set a ceiling on their LTV curve. It can only grow so fast, 
right? They don't have infinite monetization sinks. And this to me is the ultimate problem with Marvel Snap is because everything has these low ceilings. Put loot boxes aside for a second. Put that aside for a second. That's a delivery mechanic. Just in terms of the maximum amount of money that you can spend in this game, it's incredibly limited and it's based on the amount of time. There's a fixed amount of LTV I could get to. And it is it is 2022, folks. We know what mobile free-to-play runs on. We know what makes this different from every other form of gaming, which is really high LTVs. And so to, to, to go into like, you know, I wouldn't even say it's like tying your left hand behind your back. I think it's like cutting off your legs. <laughs> it's just really unfortunate to see this. And I don't think they've made anyone better off. I think they've made the players worse off. And it's just very frustrating to continue to see stuff like this. And the thing yeah, is, like with uh, CCG CPI levels, I mean, even if you have a Marvel IP, of course, that uh, decreases your CPI, but CCG CPIs are super high. And if you are limiting your LTV, <laughs> come on, <laughs> how can you even grow? It's really, it's really tough. Yeah, that's that's uh, very interesting. Um, here there are two things. No, one when it comes to like the system itself. Uh, just to clarify to the audience, so I think that Philip did a uh, great job explaining it. You basically uh, on a quest to get all the cards, and basically every single thing that you can pay is an accelerator to acquire uh, to the time that you require in order to acquire um, those cards. What I have felt so far is that the biggest pressure is on uh, credits, the soft currency, just because maybe I play a lot and uh, I have, I never um, block it when it comes to boosters because every match I play gives me boosters, gives me these uh, XP or shards of, of characters. So I can always have more things that I could upgrade if I had enough credits. Um, but then the sources of credits are very limited. Um, but yeah, I cannot, I cannot, and, and I cannot, I'm limited on how much gold I can spend um, to acquire credits per, per day by these spending caps. Clearly, um, if we take a look at short-term revenue per download, which is what we're looking at it now, right? Like the things that could move upwards this revenue per download would be things that uh, improve a lot the, life, the lifetime value at the beginning of that curve. So definitely capping the ability of uh, super, super top spenders, people that want to get in and spend 400 bucks or more on the first day, not allowing those players to do that, that negatively affects um, the lifetime value and definitely uh pushes to the future and maybe to uh, the, the break a break even point for for acquisition so this is for me it's very very confusing i really don't understand that decision not only on limiting the amount of credits that you can buy which is like why would you do that but also not providing more ways for players that come in in order to catch up with players that maybe are more advanced into the progression. It also means that if you're a very competitive player and you get into the game, it's going to take you a lot of time to be able to compete with the folks that are in the highest ranks just because there's no way you can pay to skip the the progression to to catch them. Um, I wonder if maybe the they did that to try to attempt, I don't know, Reinforce re retention or something? Yeah, that's what no, I want I to ask. Blizzard, 
Like, I uh, think this has Blizzard design fingerprints all over it. Okay. I, I think this, to me, is clearly a decision that comes out of Blizzard. Um, th- this, to me, feels like a Blizzard design decision. I think the PMs lost this battle for sure. And I think, you know, going back to what you mentioned <laughs> earlier about the Nexus event, you know, to me, the Nexus event was, and again, I know nothing about what's happening internally at Second Dinner, mm. but it felt like the, the Nexus event was an opportunity for the PMs to come out and say, okay, we got we to gotta do some interesting monetization stuff. We seeded all this ground to the design team on kind of the core mechanics, you know, we didn't end up using a Clash Royale system. We kind of have this convoluted frame breaking, you know, credit limiting thing. And the Nexus event kind of blew up in their face, at least from a PR perspective. And so I think the PMs have just lost a series of battles here. And ultimately, you know, that's unfortunate to me because I think the game, and again, I, I just want to make sure that I emphasize this enough, the monetization system that they've created, it's not just about you know, the business mechanics or the business economics is about creating a great player experience. And this to me is the difference between HD and mobile developers so far is that mobile developers understand that monetization does not take away from the player experience. There is no trade-off. It is something that enhances the core loop and enhances the player experience and increases retention. Whereas HD developers see it as kind of something that is always a trade-off. And so when I look at decisions like this, this to me just feels like something that would be straight out of Blizzard. And it's something that I think we started to see inklings of in Hearthstone. Mate, do you want to add something? I, to I add? just yeah, I just wanted to ask like if the, the those timers are just not like a retention tactic to to boost that, but I just heard that. I guess no. <laughs> I mean, that would be a silly retention tactic to me to, to uh, limit if, you know content yeah. that way. It feels it feels bizarre. Yeah, of course. For I mean, me, I really don't understand. <laughs> I, I don't, don't think it's either. a good source of, of retention. I don't understand the reasons of, of the decision, uh, but be very interested on in knowing if they even AV tested that or something. Like, Oof. But, Oof. Um, <laughs> Come on. But I don't, think, anyway. I don't think all hope is lost here, right? I, and I know we, we've kind of, um, you know, we've... we've... <laughs> We've criticized kind of their core monetization. And to be honest with you, one of the other things we should talk about is a new new collection token mechanic. And be- yes. because they've moved oh, away yeah, yeah. from because they moved away from Royale, they're doing all this Reed Richards type gymnastics of stretching to kind of solve all of the problems that Royale was trying to solve within the paradigm that they've ended up creating. But I think the saving grace right now is their battle pass. The the what? The, the, the main battle source pass? of monetization? Yeah, I think the Battle Pass is their saving grace right now. Um, You know, their Battle Pass takes a very different approach than many Battle Passes before. I think they've bet very big on the Battle Pass. I can imagine their PM saying, all right, this is our saving grace. We have our Battle Pass. And the reason the Battle Pass is actually, I think, really well designed here is that they're able to increase ADMC or average daily monetization cap. So this is one way you can look at Battle Passes is that you can say, okay, how much does it cost to enter? How many tiers are there? What is a tier cost? And how long does the pass run? And what you can end up getting out of that is what is the maximum amount of money I would spend on average per day if I were to reach the monetization cap of the product. So when you think about Fortnite, for example, it has 100 tiers, it's a buck 50 per tier, and the battle pass runs for about 84 days, about 12 weeks. And so if I wanted to max out the spend cap for Fortnite in their battle pass, it's about a buck 90 per day to be able to do that. Marvel Snap has $3.66 ADMC. It's an incredibly high monetization cap. 
And the way they do that isn't by changing the entry price of the battle pass. It's still your usual $10. And again, the other thing I want to point out here is that it's priced in USD. It's not priced in hard currency. So you can't get more passes just by completing the main pass. And that's a change they made in soft launch. They realized how silly that is to give players a lifetime stream of battle passes for one purchase. So they have that going on, but it's still $10. And what they'll do is they'll go from 100 tiers down to 50. So again, you'd think that would decrease ADMC. But the thing they're going to do that really changes the equation is they have these things coming out monthly. And they're able to keep this really strong monthly pace up because they have such little marginal cost content in the pass. A lot of it is stuff that they don't need to specifically make for the pass. So a booster, for instance, is Control-C, Control-V for a developer. It's just a number on a screen. Yeah. Giving people soft currency, hard currency, it costs nothing. And so there's only two or three items in the pass which are specific to the pass. You know, in the Black Panther Battle Pass, they have a variant of Black Panther, and they also introduce the card Black Panther. You know, that's pretty cheap. And being able to keep a monthly cadence for a battle pass, even if there's a lot of zero marginal cost content in it, to me is a really good strategy. And they are able to get, I think, some is stronger that, monetization. But is that enough? Pass. Is that enough? I had zero it absolutely motivation. Is <laughs> yeah, I had zero motivation it, it, to buy that battle pass. It's just like, so it's I've, not I've adding so much value. I, I disagree. I, I disagree on that. I mean, I think I agree with you in that. I think they need to do a little bit more in terms of the cosmetics. Yeah. I think that just mm. comes from increasing the value of collection. I mean, we were talking earlier about these pixel variants. I mean, no one yeah, cares yeah, about yeah. these pixel variants. But if you're <laughs> telling me I can collect, you I know, do. Look, all look of at the me. MCU characters. I have all 8-bits eight eight tattoos on my on my chest, so I, of course I, I care about those. Come on, man. <laughs> I, I, I think they can get a little bit better with the cosmetics. I, I think they'll up that. I'd like to see them introduce a little more bit of, you yeah. know, gameplay into the battle pass. But you know, the battle pass has been compelling enough for me to purchase. Again, it's not enough, but I do think they deserve a lot of credit for this. And I think it's a bright spot right now. Yeah, I th personally, I think that the battle pass, if I had to say like, what is, is there anything else that is more worth buying? Than the battle pass in the game, there's nothing else. Like I don't think the, there's anything else worth buying because, because that's, that's <laughs> you know, the, yeah. The battle that's pass it. gives you a. a, a I mean, it's yeah, not even worth buying the hard currency. But, I mean, I, I if I was a player, I'd much rather buy the battle pass than any hard currency. Absolutely. What mm. what is interesting about the battle, or I found it interesting, is that it gives you um upon right upon purchase, it gives you an exclusive card that actually in any other game would have been very aggressive. Like if I uh, imagine in Hearthstone or Magic the Gathering of you know, like there's a card that it's locked at least while the battle pass lasts and that card is key to the gameplay and it's locked uh, unless you pay the, the battle pass, that's pretty aggressive. Um, and that actually gives you a main a great reason to just just buy it. Uh, we actually, when the new battle pass, with the latest battle pass was released, we saw a significant spike in the revenue that uh, the audience can also check in the uh, uh, article at, at DOF where we put the numbers. Uh, so definitively adding that generated a spike. What, what I find interesting is that um, uh, it's not only that the spike was big, but the, the um, average revenue in any other day is actually pretty high. Uh, in fact, I would say that the difference between the spike and the regular revenue it's it's smaller than the difference that exists in other games of the category so that means that as philip or what i understand is that as, as philip says 
the battle pass is good at making people monetize further somehow maybe through the well it's really just the pace daily quests it, or something it, it's the unbelievable pace they're able to do i mean they're able to go to monthly releases and i think we started to see inklings of this really with call of duty which also started to restrict a little bit more about how long the passes were going for you know call of yeah. duties goes for about 56 60 days whereas fortnite started at 90 and so I think we finally started to realize that Battle Pass isn't a great monetization mechanic. You know, everyone, all the developers I've worked with, you know, initially when they present you monetization plans, it's a rotating store in a Battle Pass because they, they don't want to deal with PR issues. And you go on to explain to them how little money these things generate if you don't have a bajillion DAU. And they're kind of shocked by it. And then when it actually ends up happening, they're like, okay, how do we, how do, we do this? And so I think we're starting to see developers play more with the fundamental equations of the Battle Pass. And this is the first time I've really seen it in such a high profile way. And so my hope is, is that when other developers see what Marvel Snap is doing with their battle pass under the hood, they'll start to they'll start to change more and more of these mechanics and we'll start to see more and more innovation here. Absolutely. But uh, answering to Matek quest uh, question on uh, if it's enough, I, I think it's clearly not enough. I think that one of the reasons why, I mean, it works great, fantastic mechanic. The problem is where is where is what is it? Everything else, right? Uh, um, I think that the great system, at least in my opinion, it, it seems everything uh, that I can pay for in this game is very indirect. It's like, yeah, in an indirect source, you do this and uh, this, uh, you know, moves these levers, blah blah blah, and it ultimately translates into a new cards, which is the only thing you really want uh, or you primarily want. Um, but it's it's kind of weird. It's, I'm, I'm paying for some things that I'm are really far away from the thing that I would really want to buy. Um, and I wonder if the collection tokens that they have announced, which um, just for people that maybe have been playing the game but not aware of the communication, is a, a new uh, currency that you're going to obtain by playing and you're going to be able to spend it on a rotative uh, shop um where new cards are being shown so basically it's a way to buy new cards but it's still not direct because that currency i'm not sure if you are going to be able to buy it uh and if you're going to be able to buy it it's going to be on offers on like very limited sources of acquisition there's so, a there's very small hack they can do there's a very small hack they can completely change this which is First of all, they, they're implementing a reverse loot box, right? So if you put a randomized card on the store on a rotating basis, that is an inverse loot box, right? You just have the option to buy or not to buy, which is something FIFA has been experimenting with. Yeah. But if they, if they want to add a single feature that I guarantee would generate them a lot of revenue, it's simply implement a refresh button on that card for amount of hard currency. There you go. That That is the solution. I mean, that I think can take them a very long way. It's a very simple idea. Again, it still is an inverse loot box. And again, they have loot boxes in this game. They just don't have the animation with it. And so if that's been the barrier to them is that they don't want the animation, they don't want at least the PR associated with it, just put that hard currency refresh button when you launch these collector tokens or whatever that card is in the store. And I think it'll go a long way to solving some of their monetization problems. Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, I think that's a good point, uh, right? Like, if if you could pay for refresh, then it becomes it's a loot box. It's just that it's more of a like the uh, latest FIFA loot boxes that they show you what's inside and then you choose it to buy or not. Uh, which I think it's cool. I, I personally, I think like putting straight out of the 
like standard book, uh, gachas would be problematic with with the audience. I'm not sure if it would be the the right option considering how the product is and and so on. But there's definitely more than they can do in in um, in that direction. Um, another, I think, another big inconvenient uh, is that, if, especially if I compare with Clash Royale, no, like Clash Royale, the depth of the spending per card is is huge, you know, because they have card upgrades, but they lack this. And uh, you you can see it on the Clash head, Royale I'm, revenues as well. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, and <laughs> and uh, on my head, I'm, I go like, would it be a good idea to have an upgrade system for cards in this game? Because like at the end of the day, cards are a lot of the cards are power base so maybe they, they could be room for that sort of pro upgrade not not really sure uh if that would be the idea but the, the good uh, good idea of there is if there is design space that would really make it possible to have an upgrade system but at least for me what is weird is okay so you cannot have an upgrade system like we keep the collection upgrade system well what i find weird is the lack of some sort of evolution system where it's like, okay, I need to upgrade these cards and like maybe merge them or something so I can acquire new cards. And by that, we expand the acquisition of cards, which is the, what the players care about, beyond the collection level. And we're able to generate additional things to collect, maybe cards that you're not interested in collecting because of the card itself, because maybe you're not going to use it, but you're going to use it in order to acquire another card through an evolution system or something. I think that would even fit a lot with the theme of um of games right like with different hulks you maybe can craft a different type of hulk that sort of thing i wonder if any of those mechanics would have made sense in order to spend the to increase the spending depth per card but maybe that i'm make, completely wrong I no I, I think that makes sense I, I think it's tough to do vertical progression in a game like this i mean we were talking about this a little bit earlier but when you have rpg like mechanics in your card you know adding plus 20 health is nothing Doing that in a game like Marvel Snap just risks throwing off the balance of the entire game. I, I think they have an opportunity to kill a lot of birds with, with one stone, and to me, that's drafting. And so I think drafting not only gets you a lot of engagement, it gets what Ben Brode referred to as, you know, this puzzle solving you got to do when you're put in unique situations. But drafting is also an infinite money pit, right? And we've seen this yep. in almost all CCGs. And for those unfamiliar, drafting is when you pay a, you know, entry fee of, let's say, $2.00. And then what you do is you're building a deck from a random assortment of cards. So you're doing a lot of really fun puzzle solving. You're facing other players that are doing that as well. And so you can potentially spend unlimited thank amounts you. of money on a mechanic. Thank you. I had no like idea this. what you, you were talking about. So thank you very much for explaining. <laughs> it, it, I'm not the game designer. I'm a revenue no. generator. Yeah. Great. That, that's it. <laughs> So I think that's one thing. And I think the other thing they can do is that they, again, going back to the more of the modes idea is thinking about how you can increase the incentive of horizontal collection. And I think we know this playbook in mobile, right? We know this playbook from Hero of Galaxy, Summoners, all the ARPGs is how do you get people to buy more characters? How do you get them to expand their roster? Well, you create more modes in which they need different collection of characters. 
And I think they're partially trying to do that with some of the site locations in the game. For those unfamiliar, you have these lanes in Marvel Snap. And again, you know, they have these poker mechanics where the lanes flip and there's some sort of event that takes place in a lane. They might, you know, destroy a certain card or might incentivize certain cards being played in that lane. That to me is pretty weak. I'm not building my decks around those lanes necessarily, but I think introducing more modes that incentivize me to want to collect different cards and to generate value or inject value into cards I already own would be a major step in the right direction. But still, I think drafting gets you that monetization yeah. angle too. It gets you the engagement angle. It gets you a lot of different things. And I was just really surprised not to see it on their roadmap for the next year. They have a lot of really great things on the roadmap, a lot of things I agree with, but not having drafting to me felt like a really bizarre choice for a game that I think would kill it when it comes to drafting. There's so much problem solving I want to do. There's so many cards that aren't viable right now in the meta that I think I'd love to see in like a lower stakes or a different environment be played out. Yeah, that would not only bring money, it would also be like hell of fun to, to yeah. play, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm a drafter too, so I'm a little yeah. bit biased here. I, I think, I don't know if, if you do Magic the Gathering. I do, I do play a lot of, of drafting. It's my favorite mode in... Uh, I Well, I mean, I think we can talk about that. It's an infinite money sink, right? I mean, I've spent hundreds of dollars on drafting and I don't do it for the rewards. I do it because I love the experience that comes with crafting a deck. I love the theory crafting. Yeah. It's very I, much tied to a CCG. I would say maybe the only challenge here would be that uh, draft at least in MTGA, it's a great way to get specific cards that you may want in your collection. So maybe when you do the deck in the draft, you select, you do a specific picks, uh, thinking on how they are going to contribute to their collection and not that much to the match that you're, uh, yeah, to the tournament you're about to play. Here, if I think the collection is not that big actually, at least at the moment, and it's not growing at, at the pace at like other games grow. So drafting would be a bit more complicated in the sense that um, the, the value that you could extract from the drafting if you keep the cards afterwards would be massive, right? Uh, but other than that, if, if uh, definitively, I think that would be a, a mode that would be really cool. Maybe they could even double that. It could actually, you know, double down on the competition. Maybe you keep the cards if you get in the top of that leaderboard. And actually the cube, the cosmic cube mechanics, which right now uh, you move in the ranks and that's valuable. But at the end of the day, you generally you try to play safe or you could at least progress by playing it safe. It's just more matches, winning two, two, two. But if it was a tournament where the amount of matches is limited, the cosmic cube mechanic, the snap mechanic becomes mind-blowing right because like snapping or not the snap it costs you the the tournament right so I, I think it would definitely be a great um a mode to add uh hopefully <laughs> hopefully they listen to this and they add it um and uh, definitely i think that horizontal exploration there are many mechanics that they could explore i was actually pretty surprised about the lack of tax card tax like avenger Right and you and even skills that improve stat or synergize with other Avengers, which would be a way to make people try to do like decks them themed decks, let's say. Um, and there's nothing like that, and that could actually you know allow you to do like okay in this tournament it's only Avengers against uh, advanced uh, mechanical ideas and and that sort of stuff, which would be fun and would would allow to you know 
generate a lot of, of uh, opportunities both in gameplay and for horizontal exploration. I guess that's coming at one point. Like I, I could not see the future of the game where they don't go in that direction at one point to incentivize horizontal exploration. So maybe it's time to wrap it up. Uh, I just want, want to wrap it up with uh, a question. Um, Felix, you will go first. From 1 to 10, how bullish you are in Snap's future and why? Oh boy, can I say an 11? <laughs> look, <laughs> look, look, I, I definitely I definitely have criticisms of their monetization. Um, you know, I think they really handcuffed themselves and I, I think it makes the experience worse off. And we didn't get to talk about it, but just like every part of this game is just dripping in production value. Every single card has a unique animation. Unbelievable. Just absolutely unbelievable. The innovation in this game is unbelievable. I really trust this team who has worked together for a really long time and are clearly genre-leading experts in CCGs to be able to solve any design challenges or engagement challenges that come out of this genre. And I do think they're going to find answers on the monetization piece. To me, I actually ask more questions about Second Dinner. And I think they're going to really need to make a decision about if they're going to be a one-game company or if there's something else beyond the horizon. And so if they're going to be a one-game company, if Marvel Snap's going to be the thing that they really bet the house on, then I think you know I become a little bit more skeptical and a little bit more critical about their monetization because they're going to they're gonna need to have a war chest of money to continue to keep these things going, to continue to keep the content funnel going. You know, I don't know what... Wizards of the Coast's headcount is on Magic the Gathering, but running a live service CCG takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of money, and especially if you want to grow. So to me, I, I think it really comes down to what, is, what does Second Dinner want to do, right? Do they want this to be their masterpiece? Do they want this to be a billion-dollar franchise, or do they just want this to be a successful game? And I, I think when I look at Ben Brode's posts and I, you know, from following him and seeing him as a human being, I think he wants this to be his masterpiece. And if that's the case, um, I think he'll invest the time and the resources to figure it out. I just hope that he takes advice from his product managers and doesn't look down on monetization and keeps community in one corner. We use that word community quite a bit. And I think, you know, I, I look at community as really just social media when we use that word. I think he needs to put social media into one bucket and not get too caught up in social media. And remember to look at the whole health of the game, look at the health of the business, and honestly, the health of the player base beyond just social media, the people who are the loudest on forums. Just remember to take a break. <laughs> don't don't have our Marvel Snap open in your Chrome tab developers. Don't do that to yourself. It's a bad place to be. But at the end of the day, I think this is an incredible, incredible product by an incredible team. Um, I'll write a check to them. <laughs> I'll write a personal write to tech them. I guess I already have. You know, I've been I've been buying all these battle passes, but I'm very bullish about this game, and I think it's going to mean big things for mobile. Um, I, I really has has shaken uh, shaken st stuff up here, and uh, hopefully we'll continue to see more games that challenge the paradigm. But yeah, eleven. I'm bullish on this one. Um, I'm all willing right. to take some bets. Mate, what do you think from nice. 1 to 10? How bullish you are and why? Well, I'm definitely bullish. Uh, I think like it's 8 out of 10. Uh, I still think they need to figure out that the, all the monetization that Philip mentioned. I mean, the thing is like the LTV caps or limits the spend uh, in terms of the UA. So uh, you won't be able to grow until you increase the, the LTV of the game. And that's the biggest challenge. And we all agree the game is absolutely amazing. It plays I mean, I, I love it. It's 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 great game. So I think like the players love it as well. But I just want to spend more. And uh, until they figure it out, uh, I think that's going to be a, a little bit, you know, time. And we we need to give them the time. 
and that's completely fine because everything uh, in the game is like like a game changer in terms of like a game uh, industry and the CCG genre, as you mentioned. So yeah, it's it's an innovation. So let's see how it goes. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bullish about the game. All right, all right. Um, I'm actually surprised because we pretty much right. agree on some stuff. I am <laughs> going to give it a, an eight. Nice. I think that games game design tells you a lot about the personality uh, of the people that designs them, and uh, uh, for ext- as an extension for the companies that they run. And um, Magic the Gathering, you win the match before it even starts. In many cases, uh, in Hearthstone, it's about playing and. With more uncertainty, you don't have everything figured out. In this game, it's even a higher uncertainty. You gamble your way out of the match to the victory. And I think that tells us something about this game, right? Like they have had a short soft launch. Um, I think they don't have everything figured out. But uh, to their merit, I'm going to say that they are moving. They are now adding a new thing. Mm -hmm. So they are aggressive at sorting out the difficulties that they find in the way. I think that if they keep this energy, they keep on pivoting, they finally are going to uh, figure it out. Um, I'm not sure... Well, I don't think this game is top 10 material. I think that to be on the top 10, it's a different thing. It has more to do with the size of the audience. It's, mm. th- it's, it's a different story. Yeah. I think that... This, but this being on the top 100 on a regular basis, that's already an achievement because this genre doesn't belong to the top 100. It doesn't have enough uh, population. There's no other games of this category mm. in the in, in those positions. So this game being there already means something. I think that the key for the future is going to be how they can grow the game, how can they yeah. acquire more audience, how they can they uh, improve their user base and be able to uh, not only retain them, but make them Bring, uh, come back often um, so content is going to be very uh, relevant um, uh, and I think that ultimately the, the pillar of the game which is the gameplay that's really good and yeah. when, when you have a gameplay that good a lot of the, you can afford on figuring out other things uh, in the in the way provided you have the money and they do so um, yeah I'm, I'm actually pretty, pretty bullish I'm going to say an 8 out of 10 uh, and uh, I plan to keep on playing this game for a very long time. Oh, yeah. You know, before we go, I think we need to say, like, one last thing. Like, guys, kudos to you, Second Dinner. The game is making, like, 400000 a day. I mean, that's not a small amount of money. I would take that immediately. <laughs> so I know, like, we criticize a lot of things. But still, the game is great. You have definitely great potential. So, yeah, great job, guys. Amazing. Absolutely. Uh, we, I mean, we criticize. You folks criticize in your pieces more, way more <laughs> than in the, <laughs> That's this true, yeah, that's true, yeah, yeah, of course, um, that's true. But, yeah, absolutely, if there is any uh, developer uh, listening to this, uh, take any criticism as uh, a love letter because I think we all agree that we love the game and we want this game to succeed and all criticism is directed uh, towards making this game as big as it can be. Uh, we're really rooting for you. Uh, so kudos for everyone involved. Um, with that said, I'm going to wrap this up. We went over time, uh, unsurprisingly. 
thank you all for uh, being here with me on my first <laughs> ever hosted uh, podcast. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed. Bye, Thanks everyone. for having me. Really appreciate yeah. it. Bye. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.